Haggai chapter 1, we'll pick back up where we left off. I trust everyone is, is uh, just doing fine today. I'm, I'm thankful to, uh, to be here in one piece this, this, uh, this morning. I, uh, I'm thankful that I was able to get out of the bed this morning. And amen, I can say amen to that. That amen came from somebody that was with me yesterday. And uh, we had a great group, I think it was about 19 or 20 of us, uh, that made it to the Broad River uh, yesterday for the kayaking trip. And uh, we made it, we all made it home alive. And uh, so that was a blessing. Uh, we did not uh, make it back with everything that we took, though. Uh, that's, uh, that's another uh, story in itself. Uh, but uh, it was a great time of fellowship, and, and uh, I, was, I was able to uh, laugh, uh, and I was able to be laughed at a couple times. And poor little Thomas, he's a real, he's a real trooper. Uh, little Thomas, he's, you know, he's four years old, and I was a little concerned about him going, but he went, and uh, I told him, I said, son, I said, now, if you're going, you know, this is, there might going to be some times where you're going to have to be tough. And, uh, you know, we're, if you're going to go, you got to be tough. If you think you might not be tough, you need to stay home with Mommy and Caroline, okay? And uh, he said, I'm going to be tough, Dad. I'm going to be tough. So we get to the river, and I want to tell you, I want to give a great report. He was tough. After flipping three times with Daddy on those rapids... Little little Thomas was tough. He cried, would cry a little bit, but then once he got the water out of his nose, he was okay. And uh, but we we had a great time, and I'm already looking forward to the next time we can go. And uh, and just uh, I'm thankful for the I'm thankful for the times. You know, I don't I don't believe a word when someone says Christians can't have fun. Uh, we most certainly can, and in fact, I think we have the the funnest of all. We don't have to feel bad about it the next day. Amen. Uh, we can rejoice in, in God's goodness. And, and, and one of the, I gotta give this highlight and we'll move along with the Word of God, okay? One of the things I enjoyed the most about yesterday was we were probably only into the trip about, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes. Maybe, if that, Thomas, I'm not sure. It was just right after we got started good. Beautiful, broad river, beautiful day, and out of nowhere. Like God just sent it just for our group. Because I talked to the guy there. He's been down the river many times. He said he's never seen this. A beautiful adult, I mean, he was huge, bald eagle, swept down across the river right in front of us. He even came around for a second time. They let us get another look, and he was gorgeous. And the guide said, wow, I've never seen that. And, uh, and he said, count that a, a, a privilege. And I said, we do. And uh, just remind me of God's beautiful creation. Amen. And uh, thankful for those opportunities and uh, look forward to it again. All right. You have your place there uh, in Haggai uh, chapter 1. <clears throat> I'm going to just read the first portion of the chapter, and uh, we will uh, continue uh, from where we left off last week. There in your Bibles, you see Haggai chapter 1, in the second year of Darius, the king, and the sixth month, and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek. The high priest saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people say the time is not come 
the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let's pray. Father, I come to you now truly depending upon your spirit. Lord, this is a message that I know has to be of you. Lord God, we we need this. I need this. And so I'm praying, Lord, that you would help our hearts to be totally in tune with the spirit of the living God. And God, that we would be helped and encouraged and that we would look at these dear people that you got a hold of and that you spoke to and that listened, Lord, that we would take as an example even for us today. Lord, bless each one here and meet needs that only you can meet. And we'll thank you for the results. In Jesus' precious name, we do pray. Amen. The title of this morning's message is this. A stirring from above. A stirring from above. That is exactly, that is exactly what's about to take place in this time of, of this uh, timeline of the nation of Israel as they have returned from captivity of 70 years. This is the first group that had been released from captivity by Cyrus. And as they have gotten to their new homeland, uh, their homeland uh, for the first time in 70 years, that homeland of Jerusalem, there was a time of excitement there at the beginning. The foundation of the temple was laid, but yet they met out of adversity. The adversity came through political channels uh, there in Persia and, and also the Samaritans, the, the mixed people group that were there uh, living at the time. They opposed what the God was trying to do. And in essence, the people got discouraged. And we talked about that last week. But thank God, God did not let them stay that way. Aren't you glad that when you get discouraged, God doesn't allow you to stay that way? That God looks down upon us when we're in those times of depression, when we're in those times of discouragement. And, and if we would just be willing to even listen for God's voice and to look for God's blessings, I'm telling you, He meets us there every single time. And these people were struggling spiritually, there's no doubt about it. And they needed a stirring. And you'll understand why I use that word stirring here in just a moment. It comes from the passage that we'll read in verse number 14. But before we do, may we just review here for a moment uh, the Lord's rebuke to this people group. You know, it was President Franklin Roosevelt, former president of the United States, made this quote. I doubt if there is a problem, political or economic, that will not melt before the fire of a spiritual awakening. I believe that's exactly what you see here in this passage. You're about to see some of that political mess melt because people get on fire for God. They listen to the voice of God and they respond in obedience. But yet at this point in their life, God is going to have to confront them just like he confronts you and me. And his love and compassion, he does that. And we see the Lord's rebuke here. Look at verse number four. We're going to look at the question here that the Lord offers. 
gives, excuse me, number, verse number four. Look there. It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie in waste. Let's examine that question. What is the Lord talking about there? What does he mean? Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? What does that term sealed houses mean? Well, it is an old English word there that, that indicates uh, a type of decor that would go up in homes. And it was, if you will, uh, luxurious, okay? It was, it was expensive and, and uh, was not necessarily easily to come by, but it was an indication uh, that they were investing lots of money in their home decor, now, he's asking, why do you have this nice decor? And it could, some say it's like wainscoting, like some, some types of trim to go in their homes. And it was very expensive. And God is saying, why are you putting this nice stuff in your houses when my temple is just rubbish? Why have you stopped there, my dear children? Why have you stopped where you were, I was beginning to do a work to, to rebuild the temple and yet you've gotten discouraged? He's asking the question here. And can I make clear of this? I don't believe that the Lord was taking issue with them having nice things. I don't believe that. I mean, I believe that if we look through the Word of God, God's people uh, throughout the ages, God loves them all the same, has respect for the same. God uses rich people. God uses poor people. God uses them the same. God is no respecter of persons. So God doesn't take issue with necessarily using someone in poverty. And He doesn't take issue with someone that is wealthy. I mean, you think about King David and Solomon and Abraham. Remember how rich Abraham was? What about Job? These were filthy rich men. God used them. But you can go through the Bible equally and look where people were not rich that were living in poverty that God used in a mighty way. So the issue here, a church, I believe, is not, is not him taking issue with them putting nice things in their home. It was the fact that they had neglected the house of God. It was the fact that they were putting their focus on making their houses look good. And here it is, the temple is not even being built. And the Lord is asking a question, oh, he, are you, are you actually doing that? Are you actually giving more focus? And so what was he dealing with? He was dealing with this, not the problem of having nice things, but it also sums up like this. It was an issue of misplaced priorities. And so he's going to talk to him about that. He's going to rebuke them on that. And that's where we come verses five through seven, uh, excuse me, verses five and seven. Look at verses five and seven. He says here after the question, he says, now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it again in verse seven. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's mighty interesting that word consider. Do you know what it means? Yes, it does mean to contemplate just like the word means. But do you know it goes a step further? It actually carries the idea of putting in it in the right order. Putting in place. He's saying, look what you have done to your homes. And why don't y'all take a look over there where the temple was started. And can y'all think about this? And can you consider getting your priorities in order? 
My house needs to be given attention to. And so he's going to deal with them in this way. He says, in other words, put first things first. Get back to making the the main thing the main thing. And that is serving the Lord God. Making Him the glorious one. Not prettying up ourselves and making us look all pretty and attractive. By the way, that is the Christian life. It's not about making ourselves attractive. It's about making God attractive. It's about bringing attention to the face of God and to the glory of God and the greatness of God. That's the, that's the mission of the Christian. How attractive do we make Jesus Christ in our lives? That's a good question. First things first is what he's saying. Let's get some things put in order. I heard a story uh, about a couple going on vacation. And uh, they were standing in line waiting to check their bags at the airline counter. The husband said to the wife, I wish we had brought the piano. The wife said, why? We've got 16 bags already. The husband said, yes, I know, but the tickets are on the piano. Somebody didn't get their priorities straight. Somebody did not make sure they brought the airline tickets. Maybe you've been there. I don't know that. But you know, sometimes God's people can just totally get caught up with their own things and their own stuff that they forget about the mission that God has placed us here for. And that's what happened with these, these people, the children of Israel. They just, they just got away from what God had called them to do. And what God had sent them to do. So God's going to, he gives a question. He gives an exhortation here. But then let's look at the instruction he gives in verse 8. It says here that he says, go up to the mountain. And this is interesting. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. He said, I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. So what is he saying? I believe this, church. I believe he's saying this. I believe the Lord is saying, get to work. He's saying, look, don't depend on anybody else to do anything. I want you to go to the woods that I have provided, to the mountain that I have provided, and I want you to offer your laboring, your energy, and your efforts, and go and get some wood and get to work. That's what he's talking about doing, getting back to work. And by the way, do you know what that means? That means that they're going to have to get some courage. Listen, can I encourage you something, church? Something we need to do daily. We need to pray for courage. Don't we need courage? Sometimes we can, we can be really weak, church, when it comes to standing for righteousness. We get fearful. We get intimidated. What people are going to think, what people are going to say, and all of those things. We need to pray for some courage in our life. I need that. Pray daily for courage. God will give you that. He told Joshua that. Be of good courage. Joshua had a big task ahead of him. We're no different. We've got a big task ahead of us. But you know what? These people had to have a lot of courage. Why? Because they're going to the woods, and guess who's going to be watching them? The Samaritans. The Persians. The political forces that were against them. You better believe they're going to be taking note. And, and there's going to be the, the temptation to be fearful and to cower. But God's saying, No. You go to the woods, go to the mountain, and get the wood that you will begin building my temple. That is the instruction that he's given. And what does he say? I will be glorified. Can I tell you something? Listen up in the back, please. 
Can I tell you something? When you do something for God by stepping out by faith, when you step out by faith, whether people receive it well or not, God is glorified. You say, well, well, preacher, you don't understand what these people will probably do or what will happen in this context. If I take a step of faith here of obedience, you don't understand. I might lose some friends. I might lose my job. I might do this, this or that. And you can just go down the line. But let me tell you something. Even if you do get rejected, and even if there are some negative consequences in the context of the world, can I tell you what? If you do what's right, whether you're rejected or not, God will be glorified. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. You just do what you've been told, even with the adversity and the opposition, and God Almighty will be glorified. Even from a human perspective, you are resisted and even halted. You know what? The Lord will be glorified. And that's what He was teaching them. Now, He's going to go through in verses 9 through 11. He's going to go through with a more in-depth explanation. Look there in your Bibles. He goes on to to explain some things of why his judgment has come upon them. He said, you looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house, that is his temple, that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And then he goes on to, in verse 11, and talks about the famine in the land and upon all the labor of their hands. What is the Lord explaining here? Look at that. There's a key word in here I want you to see. Look in your Bibles. Look at that key word right there in verse 9. It says here, because of my enemies, that is, excuse me, because of mine house, that is waste, and ye what? Ye run. Look at there. And ye run every man to his own house. You know what the Lord is explaining here? He's saying, people, my children, He said, your effort is in the wrong direction. They're running. Listen, it's not necessarily that they're lazy in this context. They're not struggling, struggling with being sluggards in a physical sense. They were working hard, man. They were making the houses look good. They were looking real good. But all their effort and, and energy was going in for themselves. And it was going nowhere. By the way, if you build your life on you, at the end of your life, it's going to be like a soap bubble. And it's just going to pop and be nothing. It's going to be a vain life. Do you want your life to be soap bubbles? I sure don't. I want my life to build upon the rock, as we sang about earlier. I I want to build up precious stone. And gold and silver, precious things that last and go through the fire. And he's telling these people, look, you have run your heads off here and there for you, you, you. And here is my temple laying in waste. I know it's a tough rebuke. If I was them, children, if you and the Lord was speaking to me like this, I'd be like this too. I'd be like, oh, oh, the Lord is explaining to them why the judgment has come. It was for their pleasure and not God's pleasure. Can we make sure we do what we do that it ultimately brings pleasure to Almighty God? God is not opposed for us having pleasure in life. I'd be absurd to say that. He's created these things in this world for us to enjoy, of course. But when we make our lives the emphasis, us, 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 we get off track. Because of that, there was a famine. 
And there was verse 11. We see that very clearly. The famine came. And it will happen here too. And I'm telling you what. It will happen just as quickly in this church as it did here with this group. Any group that starts making themselves the focus and get caught up with the energy in the wrong position. I'm telling you there's going to be a famine spiritually. We'll get all dried up. Spiritually. Lose focus. The things of God are boring. We don't really care. Apathetic. And we'll get hyped up about when it comes to our own things. Some things I get to do on my free time and get excited about that. That'll be okay. I can put plenty of energy to that. My job, success. Hey, that's okay. I'll, I'll there. But when it comes to spiritual things, a famine will come. And so may God help us to realize what was going on here. He's explaining to them. But thank God, let's end with a positive note. Because that's heavy. But it was heavy for them too, I assure you, as God dealt with them through His servant, Haggai. Look with me at their response in verse 12. It says after, after uh, Haggai had given this message from the Lord, this is their response. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Joshua, the son of Joshadek, the high priest, with all the remnant, all the remnant of the people, Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people did fear before the Lord. Hey, let me, let me, let me show you here. The people responded in obedience. They said, we're going to do this. Haggai, the man of God, got up and thundered the message. And by the way, I don't know if you felt it, but that message was not exactly comforting. Would anybody agree with me that? And when you're thinking about those things that they were saying, that's like, oh, that feels so good. Makes me feel all nice and warm and fuzzy inside. No, it's like, oh, oh, man, that's tough. That's, that was the tough message. But they didn't respond with rebellion. Many would hear that message, and even today, they resist it. Don't talk to me about selfishness. Don't talk about me doing anything. That's all you want to do. Serve, serve, serve. Serve the Lord. Make God first in everything. And there, there would be that spirit of rejection. But thankfully, that was not the spirit of these people. It says that they simply obeyed the message. Let me tell you something first. You know who it came through first? It came through the leaders. Mom, Dad, it's going to start in you. Pastor Brinson, it's going to start in you. Sunday school teachers... It's going to start in you. On your job as you're a leader, starts in you. Young people, leaders in the youth group, it'll start in you. Starts in the leaders saying, okay, we're going to do this. But the Word of God goes on to say, not only did it affect the leaders and say, yes, we're going to obey that message, Lord. But it just rolled right over and to the people of God. That's what we see here. The remnant there, that's the, the group of God's chosen people who were obedient to His covenant relationship with them. It was that relationship that was designed, and they said, we'll get back to that. And not only that, but they gave a fear, a fear towards the, the Lord God Almighty. Look there at the end of verse 12, and it said that the people did fear before the Lord. I believe in my heart that is an area that we are lacking. I lack it. And I'm asking God to give us a renewed fear of the Almighty. 
to be in awe of Him. A reverential fall. Not like a child that's been abused. You've been, you've been in those situations. I have been. It's not anything like that. That cower. But no, someone that just is humbled at the presence of the Creator. Humbled. At in awe of how great and awesome He is, how powerful He is, and how holy He is. There's a fear there that truly dictates our life. It came upon them, and there was great fear upon the people. When I have heard of revivals, I've heard that characteristic over and over. When there was a great movement of God, there wasn't, there wasn't necessarily a movement of emotion. I've heard about those, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of emotion. But when I have heard most cases of a true revival, it seems like there was a great fear that came upon the people. A fear of, oh, what a God. He's awesome. He's holy. He's righteous. And He deserves our all. Oh, taking consideration the mercy and the greatness and the grace of the Almighty. That's fear. It is fear that came over these people. And then, as a result of their obedience and fear, look what happened, church, in verses 13 through 14. It says here, the, the last part of his first message of this book, he says, Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people. Now again, this wasn't Haggai's message. It was the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Wow. Now that had to be encouraging. You know, it's kind of like a parent-child relationship. It's kind of like you, you have to, there's a context where you have to give a rebuke. You have to give a correction and kind of be tough, you know. And not kind of, but you have to be tough. And then at that same time, you, you see their response of being willing to listen. It's not a turn away. It's not a looking down. It's not a cowering. It's, it's not a, a scouring on their face. It's a, it's a look of fear and obedience. Okay. You know, you know what God, when He saw that, you know what God did? He came alongside them. By the way, parent, that's part of the correction and discipline. We come alongside our children after a time of rebuke. Comfort them. That's what God's doing right here. He's taking these people that have totally dropped the ball on the temple. All right? They totally have failed to, to do what they were told to do. But God's coming alongside. All right? Now, I see that you're listening to me. I see that you're listening to me. And God says, I want you to know I am with you. I am with you always. I am for you. Aren't you glad and comforted this morning that God is for us? God is for you. Even After you have messed up, God in His forgiveness and mercy is for you. And that's going to be a great encouragement. And that is going to bring a great revival to this this congregation when they realize that God is with them. I want us to see not only is there a fear, but here was an awakening. Look there with me in verse 14. This is the awakening and this is where we get the title of the message. A stirring from above. Look at verse 14. And the Lord... What church? Stirred. He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Then he goes on to the, uh, to also the spirit of Joshua, the high priest. And then it also talks about the spirit of all the remnant of the people. All the people. There was a stirring from the Lord God Almighty. 
Because you have to note this. You have to note this. It was not just a stirring within them, like a kind of a working up the strength. I think I can. I think I can. The Bible says the Lord stirred them. That is a supernatural move of God upon a people that are willing to obey and fear Him. And it says that He came upon them and stirred their hearts. This was nothing less than a spiritual revival, folks. A spiritual awakening in this group of people that God is blessing them with. You know, we can get sleepy, can't we? Some of you are sleepy right now. I know. Didn't get that second or third cup of coffee this morning. Some of you may have had a long day on the river yesterday. I know. I did too. We can all make application. We all get sleepy. And I'm not here to fuss about people getting sleepy. That's just a part of life. I understand that. But here's the problem I do have with myself and with you. Is when we, and God has the problem with all of us, is when we get sleepy spiritually. And that's what had happened here. They just got sleepy. But guess what's happening? Alarm clock's going off. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in their hearts. And they're waking up. It's like Reveille, man. I never with that, that, that sound from that trumpet. I will, it's left an indelible impression upon my mind at 4.35 in the morning. Man, that trumpet starts going off of Reveille there at boot camp. It was time to wake up. And if you didn't wake up, you paid for it. Let me hear, let me tell you here. I never recall not one time, not one time, somebody is continuing laying in the rack. That's what we call beds in the military, the rack. I never recall anybody staying in the rack when the reveille went off. You, you, everybody was up in front of their racks simultaneously. I mean, it, there was an urgency there. They were right in front. And, and, and there was a serious. Now, I've seen some fall standing at their rack straight forward. One guy had to get stitches because he fell straight forward. Boom! But you see, there was an awakening. And that's what these people received. And by the way, that's what we need. Would you say amen right there? Maybe you feel awake spiritually. And maybe you think you're doing great and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I don't know about you, friends. But I feel like we need an awakening. Our senses awaken to the presence of Almighty God. And, and, and having that renewed for the Almighty. I heard this illustration. A believer in a comatose state has lost consciousness of God in his life. He becomes an inactive Christian and is no longer involved in Christian service or in fellowship with other believers. He no longer reads his Bible. He's quit his quiet time. He's fallen away spiritually. He does not respond to the Word of God when he hears it. And this illustration says, I have known of Christians who remain in such a backslidden condition for weeks, months, even years. But the worst part of it all is that they themselves do not know how serious their condition is. They do not feel that anything is wrong with them. And that is not a good sign at all. For just like a physically comatose patient, this is is a handicap ability. This is a handicap sickness, I should say. And, and And it brings a person into an awful state of where they can't even identify it themselves. Now, some of you who are here today, with our, uh, those that have experience with the medical field, knows, I guess, there are different levels of comas. 
and and there are some where it's just a groggy state. There are some where it would be a little bit more uh, unconscious, I should say. And then there are some that are just totally out of it. They can't respond to feeling or sound or anything. And there are different levels of that spiritually, too, I believe. And we need awakening. It is met quickly by the Holy Spirit's conviction. I believe that. Anytime God's children get drowsy and sleepy, I believe the Holy Spirit in His way gives us a prick. <laughs> I, uh, I've heard there are different, uh, maybe you've heard some different uh, avenues of keeping people awake. Do any of you struggle traveling, uh, staying awake when you drive at night? Does anybody else struggle with that? Oh, that's the scariest thing. My wife was the night driver when we were on deputation. I said, honey, you, I'll handle 4.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm, I can handle the mornings. I like the mornings, but you're going to have to take the night shift. But sometimes when I have a choice and my wife says, look, I need to sleep too. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll drive. But one of the things that used to keep me awake is, I know this may sound crazy, but I would slap my face, self in the face several times. And my wife would tell me I was doing a good job. So that I just... Sometimes, I, I don't know if y'all ever tried this, but sometimes I'd chew on ice. Sometimes, I'm sure this, some people got a really kick out of this, especially some, some of these 18-wheelers that were driving on the other side of the road. They'd see some crazy dude sticking his head out the window and driving. Let the cold air hit me in the face. I'd do whatever, I'd do whatever I could just to stay awake because it scared me to death to think I could wreck and, and with my family in the cars. I would do everything. But listen, let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit will do anything He can and will do whatever it takes to keep His children awake. He certainly will. He'll take all measures. He cares enough about His children to do that. And those, can I say it like this? I heard it stated like this and I thought it was just perfect. We do all get drowsy spiritually, and it is met by the Holy Spirit. But get this quote here. Those who are saved can never successfully fall away from the faith. Did you catch that? Those who are saved can never successfully fall away from the faith. There are people out there that that I've met that said they knew God and then now, now they're open atheists. <clears throat> they totally departed from the faith. They were never saved. Because once an individual gets born again, they may drift, they may get drowsy, but they will never do it successfully. And God will hold His children accountable and He will wake us up when we need to get woken up. And that's what we are praying for in our lives every day. And that's what these people realized. God was waking them up and they were getting to work. You know, God promised them his presence. In Romans thirteen eleven, Paul said this, And that knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Listen, I may be talking to someone here today and you would say, Look, I've said I've saved. I've been I've been." Were in the words all my life, been going through the motions. But if you were honest, there's no conviction in your life. When you sin, there's no big deal. There's no guilt. There's no movement of God. You can come to church here. You can pick up hymn books. You can look. You can tell people. You can word the lingo. But when you sin, there is no conviction 
from the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, it sounds like you might have an artificial faith. It sounds that way. What you need is the authentic faith. You don't need artificial religion and all the lingo and the look. What you need is an authentic conversion by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because any Christian in here that is honest will tell you that any time they sin, and they do, and I do, it just happens every day. It sure does. But boy, when it happens, there's a conviction. There's something inside of me that and I know who he is. He's the Holy Spirit. He says, Brinson, you should not be doing that. Brinson, you need to be doing this. I never can sin successfully. I have to get it right. And that's no glory on me, friend. I'm just thankful I got God living in me to tell me. Amen? Who keeps me close to the Lord Jesus and is conforming me to His image. And He's not going to let me get away with anything. I'm thankful for the love of God. He loves me. He's going to keep me awake. He's not going to let me sin successfully. And because of this revival, do you know what happened? Work started. God's Spirit moved upon their hearts and they started realizing their priorities were out of whack and said, you know what, let's get to the temple. And from verse 1, there was 23 days between they started at the end of this chapter in verse 15. It's about 23 days because it gives us the date in verse 15. And that was a time from the message going forth and the people to start getting themselves together and realizing, hey, God is working in our church. Their church was a group of assembly of believers. And the Lord God, the people of Israel, they said, let's get to work. Please, if, if there's a part of the message uh, that I, as far as illustrations are concerned, please listen to this one. This was written by J. Edwin Orr. He, this is a testimony of what happened before the first great, America, great awakening in, in our own country. Please listen very closely. Not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution, there was a moral slump. Drunkenness became epidemic. Out of a population of 5,300,000 were confirmed drunkards. They were, they were burying 15,000 of them each year. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. What about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said that they had had their most wintry season. The Presbyterians in General Assembly deplored the nation's ungodliness. In a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd of Lenox, Massachusetts, in 16 years had not taken one young person into fellowship. The Lutherans were, were so languishing that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work, so he took up other employment. The Chief Justice of the United States of America, John Marshall, wrote this to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, and the church. Quote, was too far gone, the church was far too gone to be redeemed. Voluntary 
Averred here with Tom Paine echoed, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. That's how bad it was, folks. In our own country. Before the Great Awakening. In liberal arts and colleges, a poll was taken at Harvard and, and discovered not one believer in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton and much more evangelical place. They discovered only two believers in the student body. And only five that did not belong to the filthy speech movement of that day. Students rioted. They held mock communion at Williams College. This is documented. And they put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. They burned down the Nassau Hall of Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of a local Presbyterian church in New Jersey and burned it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they met in secret like a communist cell and kept their minutes in code so that no one would know. In case this is thought to be the hysteria of the moment, get this. Kenneth Scott, Latourette, the great church historian, wrote this. It seemed as if Christianity were about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. The churches had their backs to the wall, seeming as they were about to be wiped out. Sometimes you catch that vibe even in our churches around here. Oh, we're losing. Oh, we're down. There's no hope. Let me tell you what God did when He stirred the hearts of some believers. How did the situation change? It came about from the great spiritual awakening. Listen to this testimony. In North, the revival in Northampton in 1734, get this. There has been a great and just complaint for many years among the ministers and churches in old England and new, except about the time of the late earthquake there, that the work of conversion goes on very slowly. That the Spirit of God and His saving influences is much withdrawn from the ministrations of His Word. And there are few that receive the report of the gospel with any imminent success upon their hearts. The hand of God is not shortened that it cannot save. But we have reason to fear that our iniquities, our coldness in religion, and the general carnality of our spirits have raised a wall of separation between God and us. And we may add the pride and perverse humor of infidelity, degeneracy, and apostasy from the Christian faith, which have late years broken out amongst us, seem to have provoked the Spirit of Christ to absent Himself much from our nation. And they cried, Return, O Lord, and visit Thy churches, and revive Thine own work in the midst of us. And then God brought His servant, Jonathan Edwards, on the scene. And in that church, as God was building up, People started coming out of nowhere, falling under conviction. And as they prayed and sought God's face, He brought an awakening upon the church of God. And there was a great conversion of souls all in that community. Hey, listen, let me encourage you here today, church. If that can happen in 1790, it can happen in 2018. God's still on the throne. And we're not too far gone because He is on the throne And I hope that church, we can be roused in our spirit as these people of Haggai's day were. They were stirred in their spirit. 
And I'm afraid that a lot of us have gotten okay and complacent with no longer reading our Bibles. We're no longer spending time in prayer pleading the blood of Christ over lost loved ones. We've gotten okay with that. We've gotten okay with coming to church every just a once in a while. We've gotten okay with not having family devotions. And we have just grown cold. And we spend more time and energy and effort in the things of this world than we do in our own spiritual hearts for the Lord God Almighty. And I'm speaking to some people here this morning. You need to come find a place at this altar or you need to kneel down there in your pew or humble your heart before God Almighty and say, Lord, I need to be stirred. God, I've grown cold. I've grown lukewarm. That's what I believe happened in this situation. And God saw their hearts and God says, I hear you children and I'm going to bless you right now. I'm going to stir you and I'm going to use you and I'm going to do mighty miracles in your life. That's the good news. God cares and He's going to work. But we got to be willing to say, dear God... Just like the people of Haggai's day. Lord, we were under conviction. You spoke to us. And Lord, we want to obey. We want to fear. We want to give our children back to You. Our families back to You. Our daily schedule unto You. Our priorities unto You. Lord, we want You to have it all. Let's pray.